Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. I'll introduce you to today's guest in just a moment, but I wanted to preface that introduction with a little anecdote. I recently attended the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Awards in Sydney, held at the Star. It was such an honour to be in the company of outstanding entrepreneurs who have each brought their vision to life and created for-purpose businesses which literally changed the course of our future and changed numerous lives in the process. As each entrepreneur came onto the stage, I frantically quoted some of the insights they were sharing in the notes folder of my phone. And this week and next week, I'm honoured to be interviewing two of the outstanding women that were on the stage that evening. The first is Dr. Gemma Green, who attended the evening after just a few days earlier celebrating another award on Necker Island with Richard Branson himself. I admit I was so nervous before this interview because Gemma's work involves blockchain and I have long identified as someone who knows nothing about blockchain. A few weeks back, I attended a blockchain breakfast at NAB in Sydney, held in partnership with WWF, and I was so impressed by the impact blockchain can have in solving some of the social challenges we face. And in that moment, I made it my mission to include a blockchain as a theme in Goodwill Hunters. And serendipitously, I came across Gemma the following week. So here we go, episode 18. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to episode 18 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Dr. Gemma Green. Gemma is the chair and co-founder of PowerLedger, a leading full-stack energy blockchain company. PowerLedger is considered the world's leading peer-to-peer marketplace for renewable energy. Gemma has more than 15 years' experience in finance and risk advisory, including 11 years working in investment banking in London. Gemma has a master's degree and two postgraduate diplomas from Cambridge University and is a research fellow at Curtin University, Sustainability Policy Institute. Gemma's doctoral research into citizen utilities has produced unique insights into the challenges and opportunities for the deployment of rooftop solar PV and battery storage within multi-unit developments, along with the application of blockchain. In addition, Gemma is a founder of the Global Blockchain Business Council, and recently Gemma won the Extreme Tech Challenge hosted by Richard Branson on Necker Island, and in the same week won EY's Entrepreneur of the Year Award in the FinTech category. That would have been a good week, Gemma. It was pretty amazing, Um, although there there were about six flights and 45 hours flying in between the two events with a newborn baby. Well, it's good you won then. Makes it all worth it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Gemma, thank you so much for being on the show. As I was saying to you before we started recording, uh, blockchain-related businesses is not a topic that we've really covered on the show, but I'm noticing more and more 
I'm having blockchain discussions with people often outside of the show on how blockchain is enhancing work in the development sector, work in the energy sector. Um, Across the board, it's something that's coming up more and more. So I'm excited to be covering that topic with you today. I think in the interest of setting the scene though, and in the interest of being inclusive for our listeners who also don't know a lot about blockchain, can you begin by explaining what blockchain is, maybe in the way that you would explain it to a 10-year-old? Sure. Uh, It's a way of keeping tally of who's consumed uh, or bought how much of what and when. And, um, yeah, it's a simple way of doing that. And the record-keeping system is owned by uh, all of the counterparties or people that are buying and selling so that's probably the simplest way that I know to kind of describe it because normally everyone has their own record keeping system and invoices pass between buyer and seller and there's a whole process around reconciling that information which takes time and payments take time off the back of that and using the blockchain it's possible to have a a common record keeping system and for the payments to be part of the record and so it creates a more efficient marketplace overall if you're you know you're in electricity market settlement of electricity in the wholesale market takes anywhere between 60 to 90 days and um, we get our bills every sort of two months and the blockchain the promise of the blockchain coupled with enabling um, infrastructure like smart meters means that um, transaction can be more real-time and um, payments can be more real-time. So people get, you know, rewarded for the contribution that they make or the product that they offer. This being electricity, they get paid for that sooner. That's a great explanation. I think I learned more about blockchain in the past 30 seconds than I have in the past two years, so thank you. (laughs) Oh, my pleasure, Rachel. Um, Okay, so let's talk about Power Ledger. So Power Ledger is first and foremost a mechanism which supports a renewable energy marketplace. You are not a blockchain company. I know that you don't identify as being a blockchain company. You're first and foremost a renewable energy marketplace. Is that right? Well, I think we use – I'm not a a blockchain acolyte. I I think that there's, you know, plenty of people that – think that it can solve every problem, and I don't think that at all. Um, We set up the company after seeing some problems in electricity markets for which the blockchain could solve some of those problems, but it's not, you know, a silver bullet. But uh, it it does enable marketplaces more generally, uh, and especially where perhaps there's not a market or there's an inefficient market. So... For example, if you've got in carbon markets presently, there's a lot of trading of carbon credits bilaterally, and by that I mean uh, individuals like literally trying to find someone out there in the wilderness to buy their credits. And um, that there's bespoke legal documents that you know write those um, contracts, and and that takes a lot of time and is expensive. Whereas if you could put all on board with all of that into an exchange marketplace that's enabled by the blockchain, then you could create more real-time settlement and the buyers and sellers could find each other very easily. So 
I think that there are certain circumstances where the blockchain can can do something like create a marketplace or make a marketplace more efficient, um, and that you know we should, but it shouldn't be seen as the kind of fix all for everything. Yes, yeah, and that's a topic I wanted to get onto more in this interview. There's there's an analogy though that I've heard you use in interviews um, that at the moment trying to sell your rooftop solar energy um, on the market is equivalent to trying to sell your homegrown tomatoes at the supermarket. You can't do that because yes. you're not a supplier to the supermarket. You can't Correct. rock up yeah. at Coles with, with your tomato crop. Um, can you explain why that's an issue and how Power Ledger seeks to resolve that? Absolutely. Well, electricity markets are a bit different to, say, oh, small person, just a little bit upset. Um, electricity markets are a little bit different to, say, Uber in that anyone can just get on the road and become an Uber driver, whereas electricity markets are really geared up for um, big players to participate in the market and everyday people just to be passive uh, consumers. And uh, with the blockchain, it means the, with the introduction of the blockchain to the marketplace, with with the willing uh, energy retailer and a network operator, it's possible for uh, everyday people to become what a court is called prosumers and sell electricity or even services into the market and be remunerated for those. And so it allows, in doing so, potentially in providing that price signal for smaller participants, it could add more supply of energy to the market and at the right times of the day to drive out costs. So it's simple supply and demand economics. And the blockchain has the potential to add a level of sophistication to electricity markets, which are pretty um, uh, limited at this point uh, to enable this kind of marketplace. That makes perfect sense. And I know that what Power Ledger seeks to do is to democratise the energy sector. Yes, that is our corporate mission. And uh, it is around really, I mean, citizens have become more enabled in electricity markets. And in my PhD research, I talk about this paradigm for citizen utilities. And in Australia, we've seen, you know, rooftop solar being installed at the rate of knots. And uh, it's very exciting. It's happened in a short space of time. But the marketplace that would really underpin that um, to the, in the biggest sense of the word, doesn't exist yet. And we see our technology as really enabling that distributed energy market and the participants that would exist within that market and in doing so facilitate the democratisation of power. Fantastic. So there are obviously some social justice, social impact issues here underpinning what you do and underpinning the mission of Power Ledger. So I want to get into that a little more in your, your background in that space. So to begin with, you returned to Australia after living in London, intent on establishing an eco-village in Fremantle, in WA. Yes. Um, can you talk us through why an eco-village, what drew you to that and how that project evolved? Yeah, so it was a bit of a crazy idea that popped into my head. In between leaving London and returning to Perth, I hiked um, at various places around the world, did the Camino de Santiago and 
went to Nepal and South America and the Middle East and hiking was kind of meditative and this idea popped into my head to build an eco-village and I kind of pushed it into the curious corner but it, it didn't really go away and then eventually I shared this sort of slightly crazy idea with a friend of mine who's a professor in Europe and he said oh you should speak to Peter Newman in Perth and, and so I, I wrote a speculative email to Peter saying I'm a returning Western Australian and um, here's my background and I want to build an eco-village and he replied back pretty much immediately and said this is a great idea you should do it in Fremantle and uh, he copied in the mayor of Fremantle to the email and when I came home I had lunch set up with the mayor and was speculating on potential locations for the eco-village in Fremantle Uh, and then another friend of mine suggested that I should do a PhD on the subject and I told that idea to Peter and he said, yeah, um, it's a lot of work, but, yeah, I can get you a PhD scholarship, which he subsequently organised with the Cooperative Research Centre for Low Carbon Living. And and then, um, yeah, basically one of the, the contenders for the sites became the site of the eco-village uh, for my PhD research. Uh, it's called WGB in White Gum Valley in Fremantle and it's um, now got three uh, apartment buildings uh, located on it and the first one is called Gen Y and that was basically the the developer for that is a government land development agency in Western Australia called Landcorp and they sponsored the solar and the battery system um, but then I was trying to find software that would create the trading market in the apartment building and I couldn't find anything that did that in January of 2016 uh about seven weeks after I'd had my first baby, Amelie, I was introduced to a couple of blockchain developers from a former banking colleague of mine and uh, saw quickly that the blockchain could create that marketplace that I had envisaged in the eco-village and uh, I introduced them to Dave Martin, one of my other fellow co-founders, and he quickly got excited too and said, I'm going to set up a company, do you want to join me? And I said yes. And that um, was basically the story in a nutshell of how we set up the company wow you just meet the right people sometimes don't you yeah uh uh, it does feel like when things click together like that that there's sort of a serendipity to you know what you're up to and you know powerledge has had you know enormous good fortune up until now with um the projects that we've been able to and the partnerships that we've been able to form and then obviously our initial coin offering uh, and the progress that we've made relative to other players in the market. But I think that the real test of our fortitude and our serendipity will be over the coming couple of years as we move into sort of scale and commercialisation territory and uh, demonstrate that we're able to um, get mainstream adoption to the technology and the energy sector. Uh, and, I mean, the work that we do is broken into three sort of sections. One is energy trading, which we've talked a little bit about. The second is asset energy asset financing and it's we call it asset germination that's using blockchain to uh, invest in and co-own energy assets so um, that's something that we're launching next year and then the final area is carbon market so there's these three areas that we're kind of working on in parallel and we've got a lot of projects in different jurisdictions to see where's the biggest opportunity for scale uh, and 
hopefully we'll, we'll get clear on that in 2019. Yeah. We have a view now, but, uh, yeah, it, it, will, it remains to be seen. It's exciting. So last uh, episode 17 of this podcast, we had Simon Doble on the show, who is the CEO of Solar Buddy, which is an oh, yeah. organization that um, provides solar lights to students across 23 developing countries um, in communities that otherwise wouldn't have access to energy. So energy has been a recurring theme on this show in a couple in, in the past few episodes. Um, I'm, I'm really passionate about opportunities to reform the energy sector, and I know that that's what Power Ledger is also focused on. So to, to bring it back to the social impact of what you're doing, why is disrupting the energy sector so important to you? And why was the Australian market the right place to start, as opposed to starting this overseas in a developing country context? Yeah, so I think Australia is kind of ground zero for electricity market disruption um, in like high-income OECD countries because of a kind of perfect storm, very high electricity prices, second highest in the developed world to Germany. Uh, and Wow, that's an amazing fact. Mm, and a lot of sun, nearly 300 days a year in Perth, for example, where I'm from. And then the cost of solar panels here in Australia is cheaper than in, say, for example, America, and it's because the regulatory process is really streamlined here and the market for installation is actually quite uh, developed and sophisticated and efficient and we're close to China, so getting into the country is cheaper. So the payback period is quick, two to three years now, and that's partly the sort of stimulus, in, certainly in the latter part of you know, the past decade in seeing such incredible rates of installation of rooftop solar. And then we've got the kind of dawning on of citizens going, hey, I don't feel like I'm getting a good deal from my retailer and now I want to install batteries. And this feeling, rightly or wrongly, that consumers are not being given a fair deal. And so I think we've kind of, we've had that going on for about a decade. Plus we've got a lot of remote communities that have historically been on diesel generation. And so a lot of the innovation around distributed energy sort of systems, microgrids, is happening in remote parts of Australia as well. And so when you factor all these things together, you know, we are a perfect market and it's no accident that we're, you know, seeing a lot of the kind of en energy innovations, not so much around the core technologies but how they integrate and what's, what's, what's going to facilitate these marketplaces. So the reform around the regulatory settings is is a bit slower, but that's actually facilitating a different kind of innovation. Like people are making choices that will result in them deflect, de, de, um, defecting from the grid, which is a shame in many respects because even with the best payback period, not everyone can afford to put in solar panels and we do need the grid. Um, and, we, you know, we at PowerLedge you know, believe there is a, a huge future for the grid if we can get the, the mechanisms right from a marketplace perspective and uh, maintain utilisation of the grid, 
and therefore its relevance. So uh, in terms of what's going on internationally, though, for example, we have a project in Thailand in the T77 precinct in Bangkok, peer-to-peer trading, and that's a partnership there with the Thai government and BCPG, and we're seeing a lot of traction and interest in developing countries or emerging economies as well. Um, and we may it may be that we get scale in those places sooner than we do in, in places like Australia. Why would that be? Why would you be able to scale quicker in, in a place like Thailand? Well, I think there's more agility from a regulatory perspective and uh, will, willingness for, for the um, government there to make things happen. I think we're, it's much slower. Um, so we can make progress in places like Australia fast, but there are, there are probably more points of friction, if you like, to make that happen. I mean, having said that, in uh, the US we have, you know, several big projects going on, one in California where the, the state of California is very pro-renewable energy and they've got a very established carbon market. And so there, there is a kind of right set of ingredients in certain places as well in the developed world. Mm, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I know that you're also doing some work in India uh, with microgrids. So could you start by telling us what a microgrid is and the effect that power ledger and microgrids can have on communities that are otherwise experiencing energy poverty? Yeah, so microgrids can be either like grid connected or not grid connected. And it may be that it's about taking a section of the grid off grid because maintaining its connection to the grid is very expensive and it makes more sense to have a, a standalone power system. And uh, we see that actually in, in Western Australia quite often where you've got a very skinny line connecting to um, a community and it actually is cheaper not to maintain that line and instead put a standalone solar and battery system with a very small diesel backup. Um, but it can be used to electrify areas that don't have electricity as well. And uh, India's got a big agenda around uh, rural electrification and providing electricity to facilitate economic development and improve the standards of living of its people. And uh, we have a, um, uh, a, a memorandum of understanding to undertake projects with Tech Mahindra, a tech company um, from India in, uh, in India. And uh, there are other projects that we're looking at in terms of microgrids as well. For example, in Western Australia, we have a project uh, that involves a retirement village um, that's establishing a microgrid and also an eco-village down south of Perth. But um, in Japan, it's separate to the kind of microgrid conversation, it's more like a virtual grid. We've got a project with Kepco, which is the largest privately owned utility in Japan, to support the creation of a virtual power plant in Osaka. And that's basically using uh, self-executing smart contracts that connect to Internet of Things devices to turn energy generation and battery storage and um, consumption on and off to uh, provide a stable electricity environment on the grid. Uh, and so that, that is kind of 
using the existing grid and generation infrastructure in a different way. So we've got quite a number of different projects. The project in California is actually using an electric vehicle charging station um, that's eligible to create a carbon credit. And as people charge their EV, they um, the, the, gener- the solar generation that is charging the EV receives a carbon credit. And uh, presently, the issuance of those credits takes months. And we're looking at uh, taking the smart meters that are measuring how much electricity the solar panels are generating to write that to the blockchain and that that be used as part of the evidence to create the carbon credit more quickly. There's so much innovation. It's it's clear that there's so much innovation happening both in Australia and also throughout the region. You've mentioned that many Australians are just disenchanted with the existing energy sector and don't feel like they're getting a good deal. What do you think are the other the push factors that, that have, have led to this upsurge of innovation? Uh well, declining price of solar and higher cost of centralised generation, consumers demanding it. So that, I'd say that's been a very demand-led part of the market. Uh, the price of battery storage coming down dramatically, lithium-ion phosphate battery storage, uh, you know, reaching parity with grid pricing um, in many markets now. And the increase in mining for lithium and and other um, other natural resources that are used in construction of batteries. So I think that there's a kind of number of factors that have kind of come together on this. And what stimulated the market initially was a lot of feed-in tariffs and subsidies, but we're really moving rapidly out of that domain now and it'll probably be carbon markets that provide the last point of difference between fossilised generation costs and renewable generation costs. And in Australia, obviously, we've had this, you know, sclerotic um, change between having and not having carbon markets and pricing. But in many other parts of the world, it's far more stable conversation and you can see that reflected in um, bigger carbon markets and more stable carbon prices. Yeah, it, it has been a turbulent decade for Australia on this issue, not least yeah. with the carbon tax and also recently with the discussions around the NEG. There's just been seemingly a lot of to and fro, but it's encouraging to see that organisations like yours can continue to make progress in the midst of a quite an unclear legislative, legislative environment and that that doesn't affect what you're doing to a no. too great a degree, if you know what I mean. No, I mean, there's certainly regular, regulatory um, hurdles and things that need to be contended with, but I don't feel like that's holding the business back. Um, and the carbon markets in Australia are largely over-the-counter, and so there's really big opportunities there around making those exchange-traded and tokenising carbon credits. So, mm. This brings me to another question I wanted to ask you. So in 2017, you were elected the Deputy Lord Mayor of Perth. Reflecting on your engagement with politics, mm. what support do you need from government at a state and federal level? Like what is the optimum role for government to play in supporting, A, 
gray power ledger, but be more broadly innovation in the energy sector? Well, I think that governments need to kind of create the preconditions for marketplaces to emerge and pop up. And if they take a long time to do that, particularly certain marketplaces that could otherwise be located in other countries, that's what will happen. So I think that like, even if you just look at blockchain and, and digital financial markets, alternative financial markets, cities around the world are competing for where they're going to be based. And um, Singapore and uh, some of the cantons in Switzerland, such as Zug, are doing a great job at attracting investment in there and positioning themselves as the kind of epicentre of those uh, markets. And they may well become, you know, the Londons and New Yorks of tomorrow for that reason. So I think that from a regulatory perspective, getting getting the market conditions right to allow these things to mushroom up is really important. Uh, so taxation and definitions around, you know, tokens being securities or not, they can, you know, if that, the reg- regulations murky companies and will, you know, vacate countries very quickly. And we've been seeing that already with the cryptocurrency markets with certain countries, you know, taking a dim view or making regulation murky so it's impossible to know where you stand uh, or banning things overnight, things like that. Um, so I think that getting the political, um, if, if it becomes too complicated and it becomes too hard and, you know, I think Australia has a great opportunity right now actually to position itself and compete. Uh, but the kind of window to do that is over the next sort of three to five years. Right. So we're in a pretty critical phase at the moment. Yes. Mm. I don't want to brush over the fact that you were the Deputy Lord Mayor of Perth. Uh, what's that experience been like? Uh, it was very intense and uh, I'd say I haven't probably digested fully all of the, the things that I learned from, from that. Um, I didn't, I have to say that I was pretty naive and I didn't really understand politics at all going into it, but uh I think that there, there's many. I, I thought that there. I, I think I underestimated the, what's possible, though, from local government in terms of its ability to uh, facilitate marketplaces. To be honest with you, I think that there's huge opportunity for you know cities to start to flex their muscles and you know bring in and suck in the kinds of economic activity they would want and also with the you know bringing together the willing parties uh, with that platform a lot is possible so I, I have really um, like it was you know very intense experience but I feel like uh, I can see that more is possible in the world as a result of having had it great that, that, that's great. That's a great experience. We had uh, Professor Paul James on this show in episode two, and Paul was the former head of UN Cities, oh. uh, which was a very interesting role. And he did speak a lot about the power that local government has in creating the safe and sustainable cities that 
that we want and it you know that's it, it's one of those tricky areas where it's hard to know which part of government's responsible for that yeah well, I mean just as a, a simple example that might sort of illustrate that point for your listeners uh no, there are plenty of companies that are looking to where they might locate their head offices. And uh, it's not just based on where they can get the cheapest office space. Many companies are looking, for example, where they might put an Asia-Pacific head office. And although, you know, some cities uh, are more eminent than others, uh, they're not necessarily as livable. And young people want to live in a livable city. And if you can... Like, for example, Australia may be more expensive in some respects, but if you um, bring in people into Australia to work, they're able to use the school system here, whereas, for example, in Singapore you have to use the private school system or you have to spend $60,000 on getting a licence plate to own a motor vehicle. And so the costs, uh, you know, have to pay your staff enormous salaries to be able to... Um, for them to be able to, to afford those things. And although office space might be cheap there when you look at it in context. So I think that that local government can do a great job at explaining actually the fullness of what the opportunity is from a livability perspective but also from a cost perspective, taking account of all of these local things and uh, and really do a great job at, at attracting in, say, some anchor tenants, big companies, and then setting up the kind of local ecosystems around certain sectors. So I, I think that, that those things, like when I was living in London, I lived in East London and the old street roundabout started off with Google kind of setting up uh, kind of a hub there and then lots of other tech companies started setting up offices around there and now it's called the Silicon Roundabout. And so it kind of took, you know, some people putting a stake in the ground and, even if you look at other places like, I don't know, Las Vegas, you know, there was nothing there and then people decided to put stuff there and it was all around gambling and casinos and obviously, you know, that's where you go in the world now if you want to do those things. So I, I, I don't think it's up to the lap of the gods. I think that people either leave it up to the lap of the gods and they get what they get or they can actually uh, influence this and make things happen. Mm. Yeah, it's very true uh, and indicative of the great differences in local councils throughout Australia um, and I think it, it's it's very clear to see the local councils that are really investing in the livability and sustainability of their electorate. Yes. Um, yeah, which is sort of a good segue into a point that you made earlier. So you said we we don't want to think we, you know, it's dangerous to believe that blockchain is a fix-all solution. It's mm. not a band-aid to all of our development woes. Um, I've been working in the international development sector for quite a few years now, and it seems to be the latest trend. I read so many of um, our our colleagues in the sector um, are quite fixated on blockchain and the impact that it can have on on overseas development programs. I find often when you dig down to the bare bones of that, blockchain wasn't really necessary to begin with. Um, it's, a, it's a really tricky space to navigate and mm. I, I never want to deter anyone away from exploring any innovation, but, you know, we also don't want to treat it as a fix-all solution. So Correct. what are your thoughts on that? 
Look, I think that we haven't yet seen its full potential, a little bit like the tech stock boom and there was lots of vaporware that, you know, turned out to turn to dust. Um, But then there's plenty of tech that's endured during that period. And in terms of applications of the blockchain in different sectors, it could help with supply chains and provenance of goods to ensure products that are exported are actually, you know, coming from where they've come, people are saying they come from, that seafood is, you know, point of origin is known, that wine that's exported from Australia to China is actually, you know, Australian and not counterfeit. Uh, in terms of funding, cryptocurrencies, you know, there's $20 billion that's been raised this year from cryptocurrency markets and a lot of the use cases are really well-intentioned programs around, you know, impact investing and social um, and sustainable development. So I think that there's plenty of potential, but in terms of what actually will manifest in the developing world, I think land registries where land theft is a big problem, there's great opportunity there to do something to stop land theft and so that the registries which would have otherwise been recorded, you know, in in documents or even digitally but, you know, in one place and they could be altered or damaged or destroyed, that could be preserved. And then fu- using cryptocurrencies to fund programs or assets, you know, at bringing in new sources of capital to fund assets, I think that's an exciting thing from a like, sustainable development perspective that the blockchain or cryptocurrency could facilitate. But if you look at, like, CoinMarketCap Top 100 and actually how much progress has been made with those blockchains, it is so nascent. So it's really too early to say. But, you know, certainly the, the hive of activity around blockchain means that if if there is something to be found, it probably will be found and fairly soon. Mm. Yeah, yeah, great point. I attended a breakfast recently hosted by NAB showcasing the work that WWF has done with blockchain and, as you said, with the fisheries industry. That's what they've been focused on is helping to – I think they actually attached blockchains to tuna and managed to track that tuna – well, they probably attached a tag of some kind yeah. and then scanned that and then the data from that is recorded on the blockchain and that those tags are not easily forgeable so, and they would be, have to be cheap to produce, otherwise it would just be untenable. But I think that that, that is certainly something that, uh, yeah, for it depends. It, you've got to make sure that the tagging system is not too onerous from a cost perspective, otherwise it's just not going to work. Mm. So you're probably going to see it happening for higher value goods um, or large volumes of lower value goods that can be tagged in aggregate, like grain, for example, mm. like large volumes of those things to or diamonds, whether, you know, high value. We'll probably see applications in those sectors first. Yeah, it's really interesting. Okay, last question, uh, a question that I like to finish most of our interviews with. What does success look like for you in 10 years? Oh, actually, that's quite easy. Uh, Good. (laughs) Well, achieving it's not easy, but knowing what it is, it's really, um, I I actually felt quite uncomfortable winning 
the awards last month because uh, it felt like I, we haven't scaled and commercialised the business. And obviously we've made a lot of, we've had a lot of success, but the real test like, if, it is whether we're able to do that. And I think as a, as a fledgling entrepreneur, that for me will be the kind of inflection point where I go, yeah, um, that's, I was successful in this endeavour that, um, you know, that I've embarked upon. So I'd like to, in 10 years' time, be able to say that we, we, we were able to play a decisive role in reaching the Paris Climate Goals and that we were able to scale and commercialise the power ledger technology and that the democratisation of power is something real. It's a really exciting prospect. Gemma, this has been so inspiring. I'm so honoured to have you on the show. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes or jumping onto one of our social media pages. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Goodwill Pod. Thanks and see you next week.